Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, which is coming right up. But first, a few thoughts of my own. Since I did a program talking about dogs in restaurants, I have been overwhelmed. Uh, some people actually wrote to me and said that uh, they did think the dogs were a health hazard. The fact that I pointed out that there is no dog-borne disease known to man that people get, and that the French who let dogs into restaurants uh, are quite free of dog-borne disease, as are the British, didn't wash with those. But I didn't do with the statistics, but I'd say about 99% of people who own pooches wish they could take them out to dinner, providing they didn't try to eat another pooch. Boy, if the politicians were smart, they'd go out and get that dog vote. It's big and it's passionate. It's part of the base. Today's program is very special because we have one of the most gifted writers in America on the set, and uh, he is Roger Lowenstein. Welcome to the broadcast, Roger. Well, my pleasure. We are joined, of course, by the co-host of the program, <laughs> Linda Gasparello. Welcome, Roger. Uh, Thank you, Linda. We have a very little story to tell, and that is that Roger and I actually have known each other for a very long time. Back in the 1970s, a very young but talented man came to work for me as an intern. And I believe I paid him. I always paid interns. Well, I was paid. That intern <laughs> is Roger Lowenstein, who is now a global figure yes. writing about huge financial issues. You neglected the word raw. I believe I was a raw intern. I think your <laughs> shoes were raw. We all said they needed polishing. You used to listen to my interviews on the, on the other line, the telephone, and you'd say, you know, you ought to stay on the phone longer. You get more out of it. Don't, don't be in such a hurry to get off. Really? Uh, uh, I remember really? that from 40 years ago. That's yes. great. Yes. Yes. Anyway, it, yes. is, it yes. is very special yes. to have you here. It's, it's really quite here. wonderful. Yeah. We're here to discuss your new book, America's Bank, which is a book about the, as it says on the cover, the epic, epic struggle to create the Federal Reserve. Uh, what is the Federal Reserve? It's the bank's bank. The Federal Reserve, exactly. It's the central bank, which is the banker to banks. If banks have extra reserves, just like you would park your extra savings in a bank, where do banks that have extra reserves go? They park it in the central bank. What about when banks need a loan? When they need a loan, they go to the banker's bank, the Federal Reserve. And uh, because of the existence of the Federal Reserve, instead of having, say, some areas of the country which are flush and others where there's no credit, which is how it used to be, or sometimes the year when uh, money was plentiful all over, and other times a year when you couldn't get credit at all and rates went up to 100%, you have this banker's bank evening off the supply of credit throughout the country and a more manageable, organized, sensible system than the one we have, or I should say the non-system that we had before it was created. And was created only in the 19, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, wasn't it? That's, that's correct. It was created in 1913. This is uh, more than 100 years after the Bank of England, the Bank of Sweden, uh, every country in Europe, also Japan, any country that uh, could uh, qualify for the term civilized uh, uh, by the word 19, uh, time 1900 had a central bank, but not the United States. Why did we not have one? So that's the epic part of the struggle, and that's the part of the struggle that uh, curi curiously sort of relates to today. Uh, in the United States, we have this fixation with the federal government. Uh, we had it in the very beginning. This is the struggle between Hamilton and Jefferson, the original struggle between Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Hamilton wants a, a central bank. Uh, Jefferson doesn't. 
they form one, then it's undone, then they form another, then Andrew Jackson doesn't want it, takes it away again. We have this uh, ongoing fight about federalism, and particularly federalism as it relates to the economic system. People are afraid of the government being a force, being a power in the national economy. It goes through the Civil War, and if you listen to the uh, debates in the presidential elections today, particularly on the Republican side, the Tea Party, this fear of strong federal power is obviously very much alive and with us. And as, as you noted uh, in your book, fear of centralization goes throughout the United States history. As Alexis de Tocqueville said on his travels through the United States in the 1800s, uh, we fear central authority. Yes, it was really fear of centralization. It was fear of any power source. And there were really two that people had in mind when they said that. One was Washington, of course, yes. and the other was Wall Street. And a central bank was really seemed to be, for obvious reasons, uh, the combining of those two uh, power sources. If you had a government controlling the nation's finances with this big bank, it would be the coming together of Wall Street and Washington. It would be this terrible tyrant. Maybe you've seen the cartoons in Jackson's day of the central bank and in that era, this uh, uh, monster with, you know, just sort of, uh, I don't know, trying to control everything with fangs and everything all over the place. Uh, this was the fear people had, that a central organ, whereas in other countries, in, in France, they thought it completely natural. It's if, a natural if, arm. If the country of, needed credit, yes. the same way you needed an army to protect the, uh, you know, the provinces and so on in a military sense, you'd need a, a bank to organize the nation's finances. No one thought twice there about whether it should be organized in Paris. Of course it should be organized in Paris. Where else would you put a central bank? And we really recognized this, didn't, didn't we, when in 1907 we had a crisis. Well, it, Talk beca about that. it became apparent there were, but it became apparent to some. It wasn't so easy. This was a long battle that was fought, really fought from the time that the so-called Second Bank of the United States was abolished by Andrew Jackson in 1937. There was a sort of a 75-year hiatus. You couldn't even mention Central <laughs> Bank. It, people who wanted it had to pretend that they were for other things and propose other sorts of solutions that maybe in drag were, were, were a national bank. Finally, in 1907, the country had the sort of crisis that you alluded to that um, bespoke the need for it. There was a banking panic. And when I say a panic, in those days, a banking panic, you know, a, a run of the bank was really a run of the bank. Yes. People ran to the banks. They carried satchels, briefcases, hoping to take out their cash. One bank after another ran out. Uh, hundreds of them began circulating invented script, just IOUs, because they had no cash. There was no lender of last resort what a central bank does. So what every sensible and uh, erstwhile solvent bank did was to stop lending because they wanted to assure up their own finances. So the threat of insolvency forced every, caused every bank to do what was sensible for it and most harmful for the community to stop lending. And right. this, of course, exacerbated the problem for the whole. You just had a, 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 a vicious cycle. And at this point, some far-seeing reformers said, you know, we've been telling you this, don't you think? it's time we had something like this, a central bank, as they do in Europe. Uh, tell me, uh, how is the bank put together? Who, we, we always know who the chairman is, and the chairman is nominated by the president, but how do we know about the, how, where the other members come from and the local Federal Reserve boards? For example, I know a man who's on the Federal Reserve in Atlanta, but he's affiliated, but not on the Federal the National Federal Reserve. How does that work? Well, uh, 
the Federal Reserve System in 1913 and today, the organization is basically the same, consists of 12 banks in Atlanta, in Boston, in Richmond, in San Francisco, and so on around the country. And then at the center of the hub is Washington, the Federal Reserve System. And that uh, hub and spoke system grew out of this tension I mentioned when uh, uh, six years after the panic of uh, 1907, it was finally realized that there had to be legislation. The question of whether it would be a central bank still wasn't, uh, uh, still hadn't been decided. So uh, Carter Glass, who was the head of the uh, uh, Finance Committee in the House of Representatives. He was a Virginian. He was a Virginian, very much opposed to centralization yes. for the reason that Southern Democrats were opposed to centralization, uh, didn't want the federal government mucking around in affairs, and um, goes to Wilson, the president-elect, and proposes 20 uh, reserve banks, in other words, stores of credit around the country with no tie-in whatsoever. He doesn't want any centralization. And Wilson, uh, who's uh, schooled up in the panic of 07, in fact, schooled up on Alexander Hamilton and Andrew Jackson, because, of course, Wilson has been a college professor, a writer, a scholar about American history. He knows this stuff very well. He says, what are you gonna, he says you're, you're on the right track. What are you going to do about centralization? And Glass nearly jumps out of his chair, but <laughs> Wilson says, this needs a capstone, he calls it, a capstone. And this so-called capstone becomes a Federal Reserve System. So today, uh, the, each of those individual banks are controlled by uh, a combination of uh, member banks in their territory, uh, representatives of industry in their area, and uh, uh, board members who elect uh, who are elected by so how do they represent the public good and they did, pick the bank How presidents. do they interface with the Federal Reserve in Washington? Well, in a number of ways. Each of them send um, their bank president uh, to the FOMC meetings, of course, and a minority of them vote. But I'll, I'll tell you something for me which is illustrious. That's the Federal Open Market. Yeah, the Federal, that, the that one that the sets interest rates. Right. Right. The, that, yeah. the one that we as reporters they just pay attention just to. bay at the door like hounds. <laughs> That's right, rather cravenly. In, uh, I live in Boston, and um, th there's a man uh, who's on the reserve board of the Bank of Boston, Roger Berkowitz. He runs a seafood chain, Legal Seafoods. Now, what on earth is a, a, a fishmonger doing on the board of a local Federal Reserve Bank? Well, think about it. Who knows better inflationary trends and price pressures than someone who runs 35 restaurants. So when the president of the Reserve Bank of Boston goes down to Washington, he's Are you going to get a free dinner tonight? I sure hope so. <laughs> uh, he's armed Good with place, what Roger Stuart. Berkowitz can tell him, you know, wages are moving up, fish prices are moving down, whatever. And so in that sense, each of the Reserve Banks contributes uh, a vote and also an impression from around the country. And these, uh, the system has been under attack by both the right and the left. The right seems to want an order to the Federal Reserve, and the left wants it restructured, wants no bankers on it or fewer bankers. I think Bernie Saunders said there are too many bankers running the Federal Reserve system. Uh, he really wants to go to, to, to inexperienced or people who don't know anything about banking. It's a very large idea in American thinking that we, we go and get the the uncontaminated. But I would say maybe it's a very they, prevalent idea, not a very uh, large idea. Uh, yeah, a very prevalent idea. Yeah. That I, I'll tell you a little story about this. Um, there was a man who worked for me, and who was always saying that um, back in the 70s that some some things were too important to be left to the experts. And we were flying down to Florida on a commercial airliner, and I'm a private pilot, so I 
interest in these things. So I said to him, when we were coming into land, I said, uh, uh, you know, this is the most dangerous part of this flight. Don't you think it's too important to be left to the pilot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, I, well, he, he said very rude I, things to me. I have to agree with you on this point. You know, when um, Joe Kennedy was named to head the first, to be the first commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he was, of course, a bit of a notorious bootlegger and a notorious pool runner on Wall Street. Everyone wanted to know uh, from Roosevelt why was he putting... In uh, other words, he was a crook. He was a crook. Why was he putting this obvious Wall Street crook? Uh, in charge of Wall Street, and FDR just said, set a thief to catch a thief. And, of course, Joe Kennedy turned out to be whatever his other flaws, and, and they were legend. He was a heck of a good SEC chairman. He knew what the tricks were, and he wouldn't abide them. I think this idea, and it's, it's very unfortunate. I'm impressed that you brought it up. It used to be that the individual bank presidents were bankers. So if you had someone running the, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, he would look at the types of loans that the banks in his area were making and would be able to say to himself, are these good loans? When you had Tim Geithner, who was a terrific guy, running the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, but was a lifelong public servant, had never been a banker, this is the trend now. They're, they're academics, they're economists, they're public servants, but there are no bankers there. I think Bernie's dead wrong. And just to make sure I have no fans when we're done with this, I think the right is also dead wrong when it's criticism of the Federal Reserve. The, the criticism of, of Bernie Sanders and the left is that, is that the Fed has become uh, captive uh, to bankers because they've lifted interest rates. All Basically the captive to Goldman Sachs. Yes, all the way to <laughs> 0.25 to 0.50 basis points. And the criticism, which is ridiculous, that, that is a, a microscopic interest rate. The criticism of the right is this um, ephemeral inflation that they've been um, you know, squawking about for eight years or something, which doesn't exist. It, it, it turns out that, you know, Ben Bernanke has been doing cartwheels trying to create some inflation. The economy won't move. That's, that's not the problem of, of this economy right now. And I, I think they have a sort of an ideological uh, quarrel with the Fed that's not based on the facts, but based on their idea that having this government organ in there trying to stimulate is a bad thing and they don't like it. Uh, we're going to take a short break for station identification, primarily for the benefit of our listeners on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 124, the POTUS Channel, Politics of the United States for People of the United States. You are listening to White House Chronicle with myself, Llewellyn King, Linda Gasparello of this program, and our special guest, Roger Lowenstein, who has written a captivating book, which I'm glad to report is doing very well, America's Bank, about the Federal Reserve, how it works, and who the personalities who have shaped it are and who continue to affect it. This program can be seen on 200 American television stations and around the world on the English language stations of the Voice of America. Roger, I think Linda wants to ask you about these personalities, these celebrity chair people yes. as they've read, like Greenspan and Bernanke, um, I do, but but first I want to ask you, uh, just on the, the political front, what do you make of Senator Rand Paul's bill that would that actually wants a sort of day-to-day -day auditing of the Federal Reserve? Now, the Federal Reserve is audited, but this would give Congress an awful lot of... Uh, if the Fed is an independent organization, it would strip it of a lot of its independence. And do we really want Congress doing that? Right, so I'm glad you pointed out the Fed is audited already. 
uh, by the GAO. The word audit connotes Unless a sort of... Unless the General Accounting Office, office. The, which the, is the, one the, of the watchdogs of the Congress. The, the word audit connotes a financial check. Everybody knows what's in the books of the Fed. It's written about the $4 Absolutely. trillion. Absolutely. It's everywhere. Assets and so on. There's no secret about it. His audit of the Fed is an attempt to audit or really scrutinize the uh, ways in which the Fed sets about making monetary policy. So if we were to have the Congress in there, we would have elected officials, people who are running for office, as far as I can tell, about 360 of every 365 days, uh, opining on whether or not interest rates should be high, low, or whatever. Right. It's a, you know, the, the, the idea, the founders were very worried that even having the Fed uh, remotely subject to Congress, even having the uh, board members being appointed by the president was too much of a political check. Uh, I, I think that's worked out okay. But to have people who are running for office have the power to say, vote for me, I'll cut interest rates. Vote for me, I'll raise right. the rate on your savings. Right. You know, I think th that's such an uh, obviously uh, asking for trouble that I don't believe that even Rand Paul really wants it. Right, and back in 1913, we had a different kind of Congress. I mean, we had a Congress that actually could work together. This is in an impossible situation now where we don't have that kind of of work between congressmen, uh, especially we, we, in the Senate. We, we don't. I, I really don't think this bill is about changing the law of the United States. I really think, as I said before, there is an ideological uh, bias against the Fed. There are all these bills out there. Uh, another one that would create a commission to restudy the Fed. There was a Absolutely. famous commission yes. that led up to the actual creation of it. I think they're, you know, putting a lot of words and a lot of bills to go after the Fed. None of this is going to come to pass, is my belief. After the famous commission that studied um, creating a Federal Reserve was actually led by Senator Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island. Rhode Island's own. And that That's was a right. real commission. They went to Europe. They spent several months there. We had just had the panic of 1907. Aldrich and some other congressmen went to the Bank of England, the Bank of France, uh, the Reichsbank, a few others, and said to, to them... To the Grand Tour of the banks. The, the, the Grand Tour of Central <laughs> Banks, not exactly a honeymooner's Grand Tour, but a Grand Tour nonetheless, and said, what do you do when you get a panic like we've just had? And they kept hearing the same thing. We don't have them. The banks here don't close up because w when there's tightness, they borrow from the Central Bank. And we just and, and Aldrich, who had not been a supporter, came back a convert to the Central Bank idea. But that was a real commission. Right. And we've had such panics, and we have had to do the same thing. Um, which um, heads of the Fed have you admired for their, for the work that they've done? I very much admire William McChesney Martin, ah. uh, who took over um, from the late 40s, uh, served until the late 60s, uh, might have been 1950, not late 40s, to 1968 or 9. Uh, he was the guy who said, um, yeah, the, the job of the Fed chairman is to take the punch away just when the, when the party gets going. Um, the Fed had really not been an independent agency, hadn't acted like that during the Depression. It was weak. Uh, during war times, uh, Feds uh, tend to be subservient to the Treasuries. Truman wanted to keep it subservient, and Martin really got away from that and established a precedent of the Fed being uh, independent. Truman said, you're going to keep rates low even after the Korean War. Martin said, no, we're not, and, and he raised them. Uh, unfortunately, towards the end of his tenure, I have to say, he did buckle into LBJ, who wanted <laughs> rates low to fight Vietnam and the war in poverty. I wonder what LBJ had on him. Oh, there were, there were terrible stories. He, he, he took him for a, a horrifying ride in his ranch, LBJ at the wheel. And I think by the time they, he stopped driving, uh, Martin had agreed to raise rates, or to lower rates wherever LBJ wanted them. But by the time he sat down, 
uh, inflation had become part of a problem. I think um, Paul Volcker obviously gets tremendous credit he does. Uh, I agree for stemming inflation. You know, Ben Bernanke, although he didn't see the risk of um, subprime mortgages and all mortgages coming, I think you have to give him tremendous credit. He really invented a playbook when the country was in tremendous agony, just a, a terrible, terrible financial panic, and did a very good job at stemming it and ameliorating it. It's not as, um, uh, as one side of the picture of glory, perhaps, with Volcker, because Bernanke was also there as the problem was developing, both on the board and briefly as Fed chairman. But I think he has to get credit uh, for helping to cure the problem. How about Alan Greenspan? I remember my grandfather always at the dinner table talking about Alan Greenspan and Alan Greenspan. And what do you to, think of Alan I want Alan to Greenspan? add to that question. Where did this business of the, you had to try to decide what he was saying, this the Delphic. This game, yeah, this the game uh, which <laughs> nobody old, else played, and it seems to You need to, to throw the entrails on the table and yes. sort of figure out what You know, there was this idea that the, the more obscure he was, the more brilliant he must have been. It was um, not a good thing, I think, because it bolstered the idea of the Fed as an oracle, and therefore the Fed as being um, perfect or, or, or something you couldn't criticize, and I think was ultimately very destructive. Uh, he uh, tacked on this ideology of his, this uh, super uh, sort of Chicago school belief in free markets so that when people started coming to him, this, this fear that bad mortgages were being hatched, that the derivative securities being written on these mortgages uh, were unsound, Greenspan's answer basically, and, and he said this in, in so many words, it was a, more or less a direct quote, if private bankers are writing these mortgages, they can't be bad, as if there hadn't been... You know, ad infinitum examples of, of the private sector losing its head in the past. And he, he really believed this. And he, he, he at least had the grace to apologize and said, you know, some, some quote in 2008, he said, you know, we who trusted the private market stand in stunned disbelief. But uh, I, I you, think you're really right. They shouldn't have. I was once an after dinner speaker at a very large company out in San Francisco. And I was sitting next to the then chairman of one of the big banks who had lost a lot of money in Central America. And I said, how did you come to do that? Makes it, he said, do you want the long answer or the short answer? And I said, I've got to make this speech. Could I have the short answer? He said, greed, greed and more yeah. greed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea that banks, we who ordinary people who have to go there and genuflect and kneel before the loan officer uh, are nothing like the way banks actually operate at the top where they're they're much wilder and much crazier and much greedier. Well, if authors had to give the short answer, we wouldn't write books. We'd just say those three words, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> hard to fill the now, page. That's a good, good segue, in a sense, because I'd like to hear about some of the other books you've written um, in, over the years. I think the very first one, which I noticed, you went to work for the Wall Street Journal at some point. That's right. And you wrote the uh, Heard on the Street column. That's right. And uh, how long did you do that, Roger? I was at the Journal um, with uh, fits and gaps for book writing, but I was there for um, 15 years. And the last uh, two and a half years or so, I wrote, uh, well, the Hurt on the Street column and then another stock market column in terms of value. So the, spent about four or five years in stock market columns. And uh, uh, what books? Uh, you, you did one on Warren Buffett. So that came first. right out of the Hurt on the Street column. And, okay. And that was very much a segue because... I knew about um, Buffett from my family. Is and, and a big opponent? I knew about Buffett from my family. My father uh, knew him. Oh, I and, see. And, and I knew of his philosophy. You know, he's a very funny man, isn't he's he? He's a very funny man. 
and he owned the stocks. We read the annual reports. In the meantime, I, I saw how Buffett was thinking about stocks, and then I would see how all these security analysts I was quoting in my Heard in the Street columns were thinking about it, and I just didn't think they were sensible. You know, I just, I just, you know, they would say one thing one day and one the next, and they wouldn't seem to even remember it. And they, they were so short-term focused. And here was a guy who kept coming back, the, you know, year after year. Not saying the same thing, but well, he but had a consistency. He had a consistent philosophy. He did. Yeah, That's because Luna and I, I used to, in things used that to I do a program on yes. the stock market, and we came to see how quickly the the analysts changed their minds and how how disconnected they could be from reality. Yeah, they were really watching the tape, is what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then, anyway, other books. So the um, one after Buffett was when Genius Failed. That was about. Um, the hedge fund long-term capital management, this uh, hedge fund that had these Nobel Prize winners on it. They were the best and brightest of their time and so on uh, because the banks had faith that they could do no wrong. They were levered up to some ridiculous at the end. It was 99 to 1 and so on. And uh, what do you know? Uh, they weren't perfect and uh, they went down the tubes. So right. that was the second book. And a after that? And, and then I did a series of books on financial fiascos. I, and people accuse me of being... Um, you know, sort of bad news, Charlie, or something. But um, I, I, I just like the idea of books on financial fiasco. It just kept happening. I did one on Enron and the dot-com bubble. All these uh, uh, Enron, MCI, all of the accounting and evaluation uh, bubbles of the uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. That was called Origins of the Crash. Then, um, by this time, I really wanted to write a, um, a history because I thought that. Um, We'd seen the greatest um, financial fiascos we'd ever see in our lifetime. But then I got very hooked. I wrote a story on the public pension crisis uh, for the Times, Times Magazine. Got very hooked on that and did a, a book on the public pension crisis, uh, which was called While America Aged. Mm. And then I thought, well, th this will be it. There'll be nothing, you know, when, when the cities start toppling one after another, like municipal dominoes, there'll be nothing greater than that. And then, of course, comes the mortgage uh, crisis. So I wrote a book on that, The End of Wall Street. And uh, those are the five books. And, and finally, with America's Bank, I, I got to write a history. I, I told my editor, now we're, we're really going into history. And she said, well, the Fed was such a part of this mortgage crisis. It'd be interesting to see what the country was like before there was a Fed, how we got into it, and so on. And that's how I wrote this book. Essentially a lifetime of writing about about bad news. About Where do you come out? Where do you come out? Do you have your own money under your bed? I mean, well. I have it um, very, very tentatively in stocks because I think that um, you know they're a better investment than the bonds at uh, two percent or something. And I think, much like Warren Buffett, I think this country is pretty good shape. You know, I'm not as worried about uh, China and so on for this country as uh, other people are. But I, I, I tend to think the naysayers get proven wrong in the long term. Which of your own books did you most enjoy doing? It is like asking about one's kids. I mean, right now, the characters in this book, America's Bank, Paul Warburg, Carter Glass, Woodrow Wilson, I feel so close to them. I spent months in archives reading their letters. You know, you learn, you wouldn't think you can get to know someone who's not alive anymore through their correspondence, but you really can. You really get to know them. And so right now, I have a particular affection for the kid I just pushed out the door. Well, this book. Yeah. And uh, what a fine book it is, too, both in scholarship and in the writing. Thank you. And anybody who is interested in the Federal Reserve, or for that matter, in the whole structure of our monetary arrangements and policy, should read it. Uh, what do you do when you're not working? 
in the last few seconds of this broadcast? Oh, I uh, go hiking or ride a bicycle with my beloved and my wife. Uh, I uh, enjoy reading, uh, preferably around a good cup of espresso. Uh, I see family and friends. Obviously, you're one of the new journalists. I didn't teach you right, because my kind of journalist, it wasn't espresso we enjoyed. <laughs> I know, it was watery diner coffee. At some point along the way. I was thinking about something a little stronger. I was ruined, I know. Well, I know. they used to call brown goods. Brown well, goods. Remember, we, used, we used to go upstairs to the press club. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for coming along. We will be back. And his name is Roger Lowenstein, and the book is America's Bank. Cheers. Cheers.